Good morning. Today's reading is from Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by a Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church. I'm Pastor Brooks. Be bringing you the word this morning. Notice we have some stripes. Does it have a slimming effect on the people on the stage? Yeah. (laughs) John, you're a liar. Oh, um, we have been studying the gospel of Mark and this morning, this morning, as we, uh, as we approach this, just, just a quick overview, Jesus, he comes on the scene, he's baptized by his, his second cousin, John. Um, he goes into the wilderness. He is tempted by Satan. He comes out of the wilderness and he begins preaching the gospel. And, and Mark specifically says that, um, he preached that the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore repent and believe the good news of the gospel. So the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has come to bring a kingdom. And what we've seen over the last few weeks, especially when he uses the title son of man, but in all other cases, he's demonstrating his authority as a king. He's demonstrating his authority as a king. And here we get to Mark chapter 3. And just you, you just heard Floyd read just a section, a section of the third chapter that we're going to hone in on. But let me give you an overview of what happens in the third chapter. There is a, uh, a tremendous crowd of people that are coming around. Uh, earlier in chapter, chapter 3, it says they're coming as far as from Tyre and City. And that's about 100 miles away, 100 miles away from where he's at. Now, now think about that in context. Um, how many of you think driving a hundred miles to see a concert is a stretch. Yeah, that's, that's a decent drive. I mean, people will drive a hundred miles to come to Kinnick to watch a football game. How many of you would walk a hundred miles to see a football game or go to a concert? Yeah, none of you, right? They're walking a hundred miles because Jesus' fame has grown so much that everyone in Israel is aware, at least cognitively, that there's this guy that claims to have authority and he's brought the kingdom of God. Now, they don't know what that means, but they want to check it out. So the crowds are pushing in and there are people all over the region that have come to listen to him. So here's, here's a quick overview of the responses, the way people respond to this king who's bringing the son of man who's claiming to have authority to bring the kingdom of God. Here's the, here's a quick overview of the responses. First of all, the demons fear him. 
The demons fear him. It says in uh, chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, that the unclean spirits, whenever Jesus came around, they fell down before him. They're afraid. They're afraid. And they actually proclaim his name, you are the son of God, and he immediately tells them to be quiet and tell no one. So the demons fear him. The disciples, they follow him. We're going to come back around to this little section here at the end of the sermon. But the disciples follow him. In specific, he sets apart and calls to himself after praying all night on a mountainside. He calls to himself 12 and he commissions, appoints, or makes them apostles and commissions them to preach the good news and to cast out demons. So his disciples, they follow. Now that doesn't mean they understand everything Jesus is and what he says. There's many times that the disciples reveal themselves to be quite unaware of what Jesus even means. Uh, Sometimes they get it. Sometimes they're completely clueless, but they trust him. And so they follow. His family thinks he's mentally ill. That's, that is literally actually what it says. They thought he was out of his mind. So we're talking about his mom and his brothers. They are on, you've heard of family intervention. Like when, when one of your kids or an uncle has a drinking issue and, 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 you, and you basically, you commit them. That's what's going on here. They want to stop. Jesus, you're out of your mind. What are you thinking? So that's one response. And then you have the religious leaders They do not disavow that he has power. They've seen it firsthand. They've watched him. Remember, he he told the paralytic to take up his mat and walk. They watched him. They saw that. They're not disavowing that he has power. But what they are saying is his power, they're attributing it to Satan. They said, well, the reason he's able to cast out demons and do all these things is he's empowered by Beelzebul. In other words, he he is anointed by the great Satan. The Satan, the great accuser. So he he has power, he has power, but that authority comes from below, not above. So those those are the responses. Notice, there's not a number five that says, and some just thought he was a good teacher. That's not an option. You don't get to choose that option because he doesn't make that available. No one in the first century just labeled him a good, loving teacher that brought a great message. No, he's either Lord, he's a liar, or he's completely insane. And that's what you have here. That's what you have here. What we're going to look at is the reality of the conflict. When he comes, he brings conflict. The demons fall down, they're afraid. The religious leaders, they're opposed to him, and they say that he's the enemy, and and his family thinks he's nuts. There is a conflict brewing, and you can see it right from the beginning, even in Mark chapter 1. When Jesus comes to say the kingdom of God has arrived, well, guess what? There's another kingdom at work here, and it's completely antithetical, and it's opposed to the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And so you have conflict. So what we're going to see this morning is we're going to take a look at the enemy, because we can't avoid it. I mean, we can pretend like it's not there, but we've, we've been just in, we're, we're just into the third chapter, and you've heard Satan and demons and evil spirits repeated over and over again. We can, we can pretend like that's not a thing. Or we can say, what's going on here? What is the, what's the kingdom that Jesus has come to drive out and replace? And so we're going to see, first of all, the reality of the enemy. We're going to hit it head on. 
because the text does. We're going to take a look at the tactics of the enemy, which is not so much here in this text, but we're going to look elsewhere in the scriptures and see how the enemy actually does uh, manipulate and how he influences. Then we're going to see what Jesus does in the binding of the strong man. That's to use his words in the scripture that was read. How he binds the enemy, what he does to conquer the enemy. And then lastly, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to consider, well, what's your response? What's my response to this? How do we respond? So open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, and we will pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that your Holy Spirit would make, uh, would, would make the Scriptures discernible to us. Lord, give me uh, your words so that, Christ, you might be exalted, that the enemy might be bound, and that people that are influenced by him might be set free. Lord, I pray that you would speak to uh, cold and dead hearts, that you would make them warm, and that you would bring life. Uh, Lord, I pray, Father, for those who are discouraged, that you would break the chains and you would set them free. And Father, we pray that Christ would be exalted this morning in all that is done and all that is said. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's hit it. First of all, the reality of the enemy. You cannot read the New Testament and, and come away uh, and miss the fact that there is a supernatural enemy that is diametrically opposed to Jesus and diametrically opposed to, to, uh, to his people. You, you cannot miss that. You can ignore it on purpose, but you can't miss it. Let's just take a look at what we've seen only this far in Mark chapter 1, verse through 3. First of all, we've seen in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus is tempted by Satan. He is led into the spirit, uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan. So that's right out of the bat, right after his baptism. Then we see in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, that the first thing that he does when he goes into the synagogue and he preaches, he's encountered by an evil spirit, which he casts out. That's the first public ministry of Jesus, is to cast out an unclean spirit. Then we see Jesus cast out more demons. We see him heal, and then people that are demon-possessed are brought to Jesus, or he confronts them. He casts out more demons. And then here in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, then Jesus commissions his apostles, he commissions his apostles to go preach the good news and to cast out demons. You can't ignore this. You can't ignore this. So the reality of the scriptures teaches very clearly, this is the Apostle Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, you and I, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You may think you do, but the enemy is not your neighbor, it's not your spouse, it's not the opposing political party, it's not the people with different ideologies, it's not even the people that physically want to do you harm, although they are, in fact, your enemies. There is a deeper enemy, there is a, there is a more insidious enemy, and it is not flesh and blood, but it is spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. This is the New Testament worldview. It's not dualism. It's not dualism. Dualism teaches that there is a God that is good and then there is evil and they are co-equal in power and there's this battle. That is not the case. God is all-powerful, but there is an enemy that opposes God. There is an enemy that opposes God. And if you're reading the New Testament, you cannot, you cannot ignore the fact that this is a thing. Now we have to figure out what does this even mean? What does this mean? So that's the reality. It's there. It's what the Bible teaches. Old and New Testament. Old and New Testament. Let's take a look. 
And here we have Jesus teaches in verses 22 through 27 about the nature of Satan's kingdom. So let's take a look at the scripture that that, uh, was read this morning. So in verse 22, the context is that the Pharisees, the scribes, say, well, the only reason that he's able to cast out these demons and do these miracles is he's empowered by Beelzebub. So there's a demonic force. He has a demon. That's why he's able to cast out demons. Jesus, listening to this, says, he calls to them and told them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Walk me through that, if you will. How does that make any sense? That's not even logical. That'd be like the Allies landing on on Normandy in France on D-Day and Hitler uh, eliminating a third of his forces on purpose. To, To what... That, that, that doesn't make any sense. And Jesus calls them on that. And he utters this very famous line that many people, because they're ignorant of scripture, think that Abraham Lincoln came up with it on his own. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. He's saying, your logic makes no sense. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand. It's coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, this type of teaching in many parts of the world is just taken as, well, of course. There's an enemy. There's a supernatural enemy. There's forces of wickedness in high places. There's things you can't see. There's, there's spiritual forces, fallen angels we call demon, and one of them is, is called the Satan or the great accuser. And, and, and many people in the world are, are comfortable with that, not comfortable in the sense that they're okay with it, but it's like, oh yeah, of course. And then you get to the, the Western mindset of empirical rationalism. Even Christians that believe there is a God, they're uncomfortable with this language of demons and Satan. It just feels embarrassing. Because we're, we're educated. Many of you have been to college. Many of you understand the scientific method. And you, and you understand that, 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 you know, the, back in the day, people were superstitious. People were superstitious. And, well, you know, it's natural that in Jesus' day, you, you see an epileptic and the person's convulsing on the ground. And you think, well, it's a demon. You see a person who can't walk and you say, they must be afflicted by Satan. You see a person who is, who, who's out of their mind and they're struggling with mental illness and you think, well, they have a demon. So it's natural that people who didn't understand modern medicine and modern mental illness, they would naturally attribute those things to a supernatural force that they couldn't see to try to explain what they couldn't understand, right? Does that make, make sense? That's pretty much our modern worldview. The problem with that modern worldview is that you oversimplify the way that the biblical authors understood what they were viewing. Just one point uh, to illustrate this. If you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, take a look at how Matthew records Jesus' ministry. This is verse 23. He went through all through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Same thing in Mark. We see this. He's proclaiming the coming of the kingdom with authority, right? Healing, listen to the list. Healing every disease and every affliction among the people so that his fame throughout, spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him, get the list, ready? The sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, 
those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Do you notice that where it says epilepsy? We was referring to that. That word is literally those influenced by the moon. So notice that would be our 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 mental illness. Okay, those that were nuts, right? And and then, but demon, they didn't think that everything was demon possession. Sickness, disease, pain, epilepsy. Do you see that 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 demonization is just one of a category? They didn't throw all of that under one lump. It was nuance. So that's the first problem. We, that, C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. You look back at the previous generations, you used to automatically assume they were simple, stupid people. They were not simple. They were not stupid. They didn't have modern medicine, but nor are the apostles, nor is Jesus saying that every problem in the world is caused by a demon. But neither are they denying the fact that, that the supernatural evil is, is a reality. So, that's the first problem with modern man. There's lots of problems with modern man, but that's one of them. That they oversimplify things uh, and, and uh, that, that chronological snobbery. There's a second problem with the modern worldview. And modern worldview, I mean empirical uh, rationalism, that, that there is only the material universe. Here's, here's one of the big problems. I could do a whole sermon on this, and I have to be careful that I don't take up too much of the time here. But they, there's no category for good and evil. So I just want you to just stop and, and let's, let's all pretend that we're rational imperialists and the only thing that exists in the universe is the material universe. So molecules and atoms. Things you can measure, things you can see, things you can taste, things you can touch. So if, if, if you can't see it, if you can't taste it, if you can't touch it, you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. There is no supernatural world. There is no, there's no God who created the universe and there's, there's no Satan that opposes people. All right, It's just us. We're here because billions and billions of years ago, um, molecules ran into one another and, and life was inhabitable on this planet because of its distance from its sun and, and this and that. And, and then the molecules for life evolved and then boom, here we are. Now, that's all fine and good, but how do you explain when a man molests a child? How... What do you categorize Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot? How do you categorize systemic evil? How do you categorize that? Because you can't have it both ways. You cannot, on the one hand, say that there is no God and there is no good and there is no evil. But then when you see evil and you, you see it, you know it. And so do those babies. <laughs> You know it. But if you say there is no God and there is no Satan, now the only thing that distinguishes what is right and wrong is preference. So when you see or hear about cannibalism, the only thing that you can say about it, it's not necessarily right or wrong and evil. It's just, it's not my taste. It's not my preference. That's all you're left with. And if that's the case, then Darwinism rules, and so does social Darwinism. What makes it wrong for the strong to oppress the weak? Why is that wrong? 
You have no answer. Well, because our society has said it wrong. Well, you know what? In Germany, the society said it was okay to off Jews. And in our culture, hundreds of years ago, it was okay culturally to own black people. And that was the cultural norm. And that, if you took a vote, and you said that that evil and good is defined by society, well, then it's a shifting target, and the goalposts move all the time. And I know you're not comfortable with that. You shouldn't be comfortable with that because it's not true. There are things which are intrinsically good because they align with the will of God and there are things which are intrinsically evil because they do not align with the will of God. But notice that the will of God is what makes good good and it's what makes anything contrary to that evil. Even by slight degrees. So that's the reality of evil. And modern man has no, they have no category for it. Jesus' worldview, on the other hand, Jesus' worldview is there is a God and he is the son of God incarnate. There is man made in his image to reflect and bear his image and to bring him glory. There's the material universe which he has told man to, to, to have dominion over, to cultivate it so that it is, it's, it's prosperous and, and God's glory is, is, is manifold. And, and that there is a, a physical realm and there's a spiritual realm and those realms, they intersect, they overlap. That's Jesus' worldview. He's totally unapologetic for that. And the first century reader assumes that worldview. It's only been over the last 200 years that, that people have said, oh, no, 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 that's not a thing. That's not a thing. To their demise, and I think over the last 100 years, I, I think modern man is like, oh, you know what, maybe there is evil. After two world wars and, and so forth, and genocide all over the planet, again and again and again, it's just a matter of time before you see it again. And then you see, you know, I'm going to call that evil. I'm okay with saying that's evil. That's wrong. That's wrong. So that's Jesus' worldview. He assumes it. Because it's true. It's true. Now, let's take a look and get practical here. The tactics of the enemy. I know Halloween's coming up and everybody's got their Halloween decorations out and you can buy your candy even now. Which I don't recommend because you'll eat it before the kids come knocking on your door. So there's this sense of which we're, we're kind of culturally aware of the supernatural. We're culturally aware of evil. And, and Hollywood loves this theme, by the way. The horror genre makes lots and lots of money. And, 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 but let's understand how, how the enemy really works on a practical level. On a practical level, from from Scripture, this isn't a this isn't a, a, an exhaustive treatment of the subject. But let's just take a look. First of all, there's temptation. You see this right out of the gate after God placed man in the garden, told them to to be fruitful, to multiply, to cultivate the garden, to bear His image, and right out of the gate, you see the serpent come into the garden. And by the way, it's not just a serpent. It's not just a, a creature from a field. The reader knows there's something more going on here. And then at Revelation, it gives you the identity of the great serpent, which is Satan. So Satan comes and says, did God actually say you will not, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then Eve corrects him and says, no, no, God says that we can eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And God said that on the day that we eat of that tree, we'll surely die. And he says, the serpent says, you won't surely die. You won't really die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that's the first temptation. And everyone here has experienced temptation just within the last few days, maybe within the last few hours. And it always works something like this. You see something which is pleasing to the eye, potentially pleasing to the taste buds, something which is desirous to give you wisdom, to give you money, to give you pleasure, to give you notoriety, to give you anything. And you, there's, a, there's a sense you, you long for it and you know you want it. But you also have this inborn inborn capacity or inborn trait as a human being. It's called a sense of oughtness. C.S. Lewis calls it, where you know that you ought not to eat from the tree. You know that you ought not to download the porn. You know that you ought not to lie. You know that you ought not to fudge your taxes. You know that you ought not to be selfish. You know that you ought not to be a whole lot of things, right? But you won't surely die. In your mind, in your mind, what you hear, and it's crazy, but it sounds like your own voice. Because it is, but your own voice is, is being, there, there, there's a message in there that you won't surely die. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a website. I'm not hurting anyone. No one will be hurt by this. And if they are hurt, they deserved it. You, you, see, you see the justification? Where do you think that comes from? Well, you can say, what well, comes from my own subconscious. Yes, and there's an enemy. There's enemy. So the goal is to, is to bring us to a place where we willfully, where we willfully transgress and we walk away from the God who promises to love us and, and provide for us. So that's the whole point. And that's, that's what temptation is. That's what temptation is. It's to lure us to sin. And his chief objective, his chief tool here is lies. Not total lies. Just just alter the truth a little bit. You know, it is true that we are like God. We're his image bearers. But he says, you'll be, he's holding out on you. So you call God's goodness into question. All these are lies, 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 lies. And then you see in Genesis chapter four, after the fall, Cain, angry at God, because God doesn't accept his worship, but accepts Abel's. And he says, well, if you do right, will you not be accepted? And he warns him, God says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. We talked a little bit about that last week. It's crouching. It desires to have you. He's personifying sin as if sin is something outside of ourselves. Well, it is, and it isn't. It's both. It's not an either or. My desires since the fall are often inclined towards selfishness. And that's all on me. I don't need Satan to tempt me. But then he's not, he's not passive, he's active, and so he tempts us. And, and that's what we hear. We start to self-justification. We start to think of excuses, or those excuses are implanted. It's all temptation. But that's his, that's his setup to get us to sin. You think, well, that's the worst. Well, in a sense, having sinned, we've fallen in Adam and Eve, and now all have sinned, and death has entered the world. But since then, oh, sin, the sin part's just the beginning. The temptation, that's the setup. That's the setup. It's the punch. 
It's the, it's the, it's the, the second blow that comes which, is, which does the damage. And that is accusation. Once we've slipped into sin, that's when his fun really begins. This is from the Old Testament in Zechariah. This is a prophet who has a vision of the high priest. And Zechariah says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan. Now the Hebrew here says, The Satan. It's a title, it's not a name. The title means the accuser, the adversary. So the Satan is standing before the throne room of God, accusing the high priest. Now, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not brand, speaking of Joshua, plucked from the fire? Now, verse 3, this gives you an insight into what the accusation is. What is the enemy? What is the Satan accusing Joshua of? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. Here's what the enemy does. He tempts you and says, you will not surely die. It's just a little porn. It's just a little lie. It's just a little self-indulgence. It's just a little, you know, it's just a little sin. And then once you take it, the pleasure is fleeting and then there is shame and there's guilt and you are defiled. And then he says, look at you. How many of you have heard this? You call yourself a Christian. You pathetic loser. And then you begin to wear your shame like a garment. And here's where the enemy really has fun because now he's given you and you've given yourself a new identity. Not as in radiant child of God, but defiled rebel. And when you look in the mirror, that's what you see. And the enemy's like right there. You're an idiot. And it's sometimes it's not even the sin you commit, but it's the sin committed against you. Some of you have been abused. Some of you have been used. And once you were abused and used and you started to wear that shame, you began to live out that identity and you heard these words. Well, you've gone this far. You might as well live in it. And anyone who suffered from sexual abuse knows what I'm talking about. You begin to live out that identity and becomes a piece of who you are. And you can't see yourself as anything other than filthy and stained. You begin to look at other people and you begin to become ashamed and you start to hide and you start to wear fig leaves because of the shame, because of the guilt. And that's who you think you are. And the enemy has you under his thumb. Have you ever noticed that kids, little kids, have this incredible self-confidence? Have you noticed that? But by the time they're in junior high, they hide. What, what, what's, what go, what's going on there? How did that little five-year-old that, was, that thought that everything they did was, was, was worthy of, of applause to the teenager who sits in the room cutting themselves? How does this happen? Or the 30-year-old who, who looks back at their past and how what everybody says, said to them and what their parents said to them and, and that became their true, their new identity. 
Loser, stupid, idiot, fat, ugly. All of those things. That's the enemy. And that's the next step is subjugation. Now he's got us. We're just in this cycle of sin, temptation, sin, shame, guilt. Sin, shame, guilt. And this is why the Apostle Paul says, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Do you understand that it doesn't, there's no billboard that says, I'm following Satan. I'm following Satan. Uh, Nobody thinks that, but we follow our own fleshly desires the way the world, everyone else is doing it. And then there's sin, there's shame, there's guilt among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We are all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we don't even know it. That looks a lot less like a horror movie. And it looks a lot more like Wall Street. Satan doesn't wear a suit, have a pointy, pointy horns and a pitchfork. C.S. Lewis refers to him as more of a guy in a three-piece suit or a turtleneck. And that's far more terrifying because you're scared of the images of Hollywood, but you're not scared of of just the way the world does things. But, But the end result is the same, bondage. Bondage. Okay, we got to get to the good part because it's not helpful to leave people in bondage. The conquest of the enemy. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. Here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, it doesn't, your worldview that I'm with Satan, but I'm casting out Satan, is, is, that's moronic. It doesn't make any sense at all. But let me tell you how it works. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good. See, here's what Jesus is saying. I'm plundering the, the kingdom of darkness. I'm, I'm setting captives free. I came to do that. I came to preach good news to the poor. I came to set captives free. I came to cast out demons. And I came to preach the good news of the kingdom. I am plundering the strong man's house. And let me tell you something. For me to do that, I have to bind him. And I have authority to do that because I'm the son of man. That's who I am. I have the authority. Now, it begs the question, how does he bind the strong man? How does he have this authority to come to someone like you, like me, who have willfully in the past chosen to walk away from God or unwillingly we were sinned against and we wear that shame and then we embrace that identity and we begin to live it out ourselves. How does, how does he bind the strong man to set sinners free? How does he do that? What does he do? Does he just say the word? Well, up until this point, yes. That's all he's doing. He's just saying, casting out demons. He hasn't done anything. He's just doing it simply by his verbal authority because of who he is. But he's talking about something more than simply proclaiming something. He's talking about binding the enemy. How does he bind the enemy? We have to jump forward to the cross. Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself. What is the power of the enemy? The power of the enemy is sin and shame and guilt 
and subjugation. See, here's the thing. We are volitional creatures. We have free will. He cannot force you to sin. He cannot force me to sin. But once we've sinned, he can whisper into our ear and shout in our faces, look at who you are. You'll never be anything other than a drunk. You'll never be anything other than a slut. You'll never be anything other than ugly. You'll never be anything other than fat. You'll never be anything other than loathed. You'll never be anything other than a materialistic. Whatever it is that you see yourself as, that's his power. And Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2. And you, and me, and us... We were all dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. But God made us alive together with him. Having forgiven our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, there's where the power is, nailing it to the cross. And verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. You see, that's what the Lord said to Satan in the, in the vision that, that, that Zechariah had of the high priest who was covered in filthy rags. It says, may the Lord rebuke you, Satan, for I have plucked him out of the brand of fire and I've made him my own. And right after that passage, it says that he took off his filthy garments and he clothed him in garments of white, garments of righteousness. And here's the truth about who you are in Christ if you're in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because all of those things that Satan says are true about you, Jesus took upon himself and he bore the penalty. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So all the enemy has is lies. So when he tells you that you are a sinner, you have to remember who Christ calls you today. I want to back up just a little bit. And he went up on a mountain and he called to those whom he desired and they came to him. In verse 14, he appointed the 12. Some translations say ordained. Honestly, there's no good English rendering of this word because the, if you just literally translated it, it would say, and he made 12. He, he made them. It isn't just... Oh, look, Peter, he's got potential. Peter, you're one of mine now. Andrew, he can do the job. No, 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 no. No, he made them. They're just 12 ordinary people. They're just like us. They've sinned, they've fallen short of the glory of God, and they live in their sinful identities. But he comes along and he makes them and he gives them a new identity. He said, Simon, you're no longer Simon, you're Peter. He names Peter. He gives us a new name. This is what the book of Revelation says. It says that each of us is given a new name that's written on a stone that only us and the Holy Spirit understands. You see, Brooks, what does that mean? I have no idea what that means in one sense. And I know exactly what it means. It means that my identity is stamped upon the hands and the feet and the side of Jesus. And my identity is united with who he is and his identity. He called me. He made me. I'm not an idiot. You're not an idiot. You're not an alcoholic. You're not a homosexual. 
You are a born-again child of the living king. That's who you are. That's who I am. That's who we are if we are in Christ. And that is a big if. I don't know your heart. I don't know if you have a personal relationship with Jesus. But I know that he gave his life on the cross for you so that you could be his. But not everybody, not everybody's going to respond that way. He ends his little speech to the Pharisees. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. Whatever blasphemies they utter. Okay, I want you to stop right there. Whatever blasphemies they utter. The 12 individuals he called to himself... All of them will run. One of them will verbally deny that he knows him three different times. And that's forgiven. His family, his mother, his brothers, James, who wrote the book of James. At this moment, at this moment, when he is saying this word, his family says, he's lost his mind. Here's what Jesus is saying. Those of you who think I'm completely out of my mind, someday you're going to trust me when you see me risen again and your sins are going to be washed. And everything, Peter, your denial, it's going to be washed. Your sexual immorality, it's going to be washed. Your greed, it's going to be washed. Matthew, your materialism, it's going to be washed. Mom, you think I'm nuts, it's going to be washed. James, bro, You think I'm crazy? It's going to be washed. All these things, all these sins against me. You don't know who I am. You're rejecting me. You think I'm insane. It's all going to be forgiven. But you Pharisees, you're watching the things that I do and you're watching me, you're watching me heal. You're watching me cast out demons. Nothing can convince you. You people are willfully blind. You people are willfully blind. And any evidence that you see, you attribute to the enemy. There's no hope for you. And in the end, if you should die that way, that sin is unpardonable. Now, I know there's many people here who are like, have I committed the unpardonable sin? If you're worrying about committing the unpardonable sin, the answer is no. The Pharisees are not worried about committing the unpardonable sin. They're willfully blind. They're willfully blind. Do you you see the difference? He's not talking about the person who's wrestling with the assurance of their salvation. He's talking about the person who's convinced that Jesus is not who he says he is. And by the way, that is not a one-time offense. That is a lifelong offense. Because the Apostle Paul, at moments in his life, he was one of those guys that attributed the works of Christ to Satan. He believed that he was a false teacher. So this is, this is what, what Jesus is saying. If you live your whole life in a state of willful blindness and you won't accept anything the New Testament says and you won't examine it, you'll be eternally lost. But there is no sin. There is no sin under heaven which cannot be forgiven if you simply recognize who Jesus is and come to him. This morning, we're going to close with communion. The Apostle Paul, one of those religious leaders who attributed to Jesus false motives and, and, and malevolent, malevolent intent, 
He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We celebrate communion to remember what Christ has done on the cross to break the chains of the enemy. He gave himself willingly and became a sin offering for us that the serpent would strike his heel, as it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But in striking his heel, he crushes the head of the enemy. When you take communion, what you are looking at is bread and wine, which represents the bruised body and the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. The striking of his heel. But you're also witnessing the means by which the head of the serpent was crushed and the strong man was bound. So here at Grace, we practice open communion. That means you do not have to be a member, but communion is for those who have trusted in Jesus for their salvation. And if you're not sure if you have, simply cry out to him and say, Lord Jesus, I don't know what all this means, but I believe that you are who you say you are. Save me from my sins and make me the person you want me to be. That begins your journey. Just like the disciples who didn't have it all figured out, it begins your journey of following the one who does so that you and I, that we might live in freedom. As the, as the praise man plays and, and sings, meditate on what Christ has done to set you free from your sin and from the enemy. And then we'll come back and we'll take communion together. Father, we give thanks to you for the sacrifice of your son. Thank you that when he was tempted by the enemy, he quoted scripture and he worshiped you, Father, alone. Thank you that he was victorious. Thank you that in his baptism, he identified with us in our sins and in the cross, he took upon himself those sins. Lord, we eat this bread and we remember that he has bound the strong man. So, Father, we eat this bread recognizing that his life is our righteousness. His life and his merit is our justification. Father, we worship you and we give you thanks for this juice which represents his blood, which was the shedding of the cross. Thank you that he has disarmed the rulers, disarmed the authorities, and he's put them to open shame. Thank you, Lord, that everyone who is in Christ and participates in this communion this morning, there is no condemnation. There's no accusation that sticks anymore because you've made us righteousness and we could not make ourselves righteous. Lord, we thank you. We worship you and we take these elements in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, help us to believe what I have preached to myself and what we've heard this morning through your word. Where we recognize that while the enemy is bound, he is not silent and he's not unactive. He is actively tempting. He's actively accusing. So, Father, help us to actively preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another in community that we might walk in freedom that you've purchased for us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. God bless. Go in grace. We'll see you next week.